I can remember finishing that book for the first time, writing it when I was a teenager, and I had this dream of, of publishing it. So I started submitting that, that book to publisher after publisher and getting rejection after rejection. I, I, I hung up each rejection on a, on a pin in my bedroom, but the problem was the pin became too weak to hold all the rejection letters. So I went to the, I went to the garage and I got a spike and a hammer and I hammered a spike into the wall and I, rejection after rejection after rejection. Finally, uh, a small publisher gave me a small advance to publish my book named Carrie and I went on to become the horror writer that you know, my name is Stephen King. But it isn't just Stephen's story. There's a story of another I want to share with you this morning. And she would tell you that she imagined a fanciful, wonderful, unbelievable world that she knew children would love. She imagined this world and she wrote the first book about that world. But no one would publish it. In fact, she was so poor from having devoted all of her time to writing that she literally couldn't afford to copy the book. And so she would hand type on her typewriter, chapter after chapter after chapter. Finally, one publisher who had rejected her, which was her 12th rejection, uh, left the sample chapter out. And his granddaughter found it. And she came back to him and she said, I need to know what happens to this boy, this boy with this lightning scar on his forehead. They went on to publish that book, and the rest is history. You know her as J.K. Rowling, who became the world's first billionaire author. You see, this week, as I've been preparing to conclude this series on waiting, what I found is that when it comes to the people that many of us admire, that we call successful, that we call achievers, almost all of them were BFFs with waiting. They knew waiting really, really well. And it isn't just in our day and in our culture, it's in the Bible. The beginning of the Bible, you meet a woman, her name is Sarah, and she's told that she's going to get pregnant with a a child. Well, it's 25 years from the promise of pregnancy to realizing she's pregnant. There's a young man at the beginning of the Bible, his name is Joseph, and he has a dream that he is going to rule over his family and have incredible power, but he spends 20 years, most of it in prison, waiting for that. In the middle of the Bible, you meet a man named David, who was anointed king, but had to wait 20 years until he was appointed king. There's a woman named Esther in the middle of the Bible, and she becomes queen of Persia, but it's over 20 years until she realizes why, that she would become the savior and deliverer of her people. And even the apostle Paul, who wrote 20% of the Bible inspired by God, he spent 10 years between when he was saved to when the church finally had enough confidence in him to send him out. Friends, waiting is normal. It's not abnormal. It's not something God uses to punish us. That's not something reserved for the people who haven't tried hard enough. Waiting is normal. And if anything else over the last four weeks, I hope you're coming to recognize that waiting is, is the majority of our lives. It isn't the small interruptions 
Like if you're watching a television show, waiting isn't the commercials and your real life is the show. No, no, waiting is the the real show and you get some breaks in the commercials. Most of us are going to spend the bulk of our lives waiting for something. And when you go through waiting, it doesn't mean that you're somehow weird or abnormal, somehow that you did something wrong for God to punish you. No, waiting is normal. And in the middle of that waiting, many of us, as we said in this series, we end up hearing lies. We end up buying into things that simply aren't true. And the final one of these I want to share with you today, the lie that I think we hear often loudest near the end of the waiting room, is this is such a waste. I don't know if there's a a harder feeling to have than the feeling where you feel like your life is being wasted. Or that feeling where you feel like somebody's wasting your time. You feel powerless. You feel angry. You feel frustrated. And when that feeling comes and you begin to feel that way towards God, that's a dangerous place to be. Today, as we conclude this series on waiting, I want to share what I think is the truth that speaks to that lie. And it's our big idea this morning. And that's with God, our waiting is never wasted. With God, we're going to see today, our waiting is never wasted. Now, I know for some of you, you go, well, my waiting sure feels like a waste. Or you go, I I have this person in my life and they went through this long period and we still don't understand, understand it yet. Yeah, you may not understand your waiting this side of heaven. Let's just be real for a second. You may not understand in your human perspective in this earth why you went through waiting. But the story that we're going to look at today shows us that with God and from God's perspective and in light of what he's doing, our waiting is never wasted. And I want to share that story today in the book of Luke chapter 2. So if you have a Bible... I'd encourage you to open it up to Luke chapter 2. We've been in this section of scripture for the last four weeks, the beginning of Matthew, the beginning of Luke. Luke's the 41st book in the Bible. It's bookended by Mark and John. And and what we've kind of done is we've kind of danced around the actual moment when Jesus is born. We'll talk about that on Christmas Eve if you're going to be in town and be with us. We'd encourage you to invite some friends to be a part of that night. It's not going to snow that much, and y'all have survived way worse. So... uh, We had three feet last year in February. You can do three inches. Um, But in the book of Luke chapter two, we see two people who've been in the waiting room. Well, for some of us, they've been in the waiting room longer than we've been alive. And they've dealt with the feeling, is my waiting wasted? And I want to ask you to stand with me and follow along as we read beginning in Luke chapter two, verse 22. And it says, and when the time came for their purification, this would be Jesus and his family, according to the law of Moses, they brought Jesus up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, and don't advance this slide, a pair of young turtle doves or young pigeons. Now the reason why they brought turtle doves or pigeons is because Jesus' family was dirt poor. They, they couldn't afford a lamb. And so if on Christmas this year you're struggling to put presents under the tree or to make ends meet, I need you to know that you're more like Jesus than you realize. His family literally needed a special dispensation. They were so poor to do the offering. He wasn't born into riches. He was born in poverty. 
Let's keep going in verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he'd seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the law, the custom of the law. And he took up in his arms and he blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word for my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. Now jump down to verse 36. And there was also a prophetess named Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and praying night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak to him, of him, to all who were waiting for the redemption of Israel. God, we've been waiting here for you. But we also know that you have been waiting for us. We pray that you'd speak to us powerfully this year at Christmas. And show us what it is that you're doing while we're waiting. Speak through your word this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. I want to introduce you a little bit to these two people whose story we just read. And the first one's name is is Simeon. Uh, Simeon was was not a priest like Zachariah, who we studied a couple weeks ago. Simeon was, was likely a businessman. But what was unique about him is the text tells us that the Holy Spirit was on him. Now that's a unique thing in the day of Jesus's life because not everyone had the Holy Spirit. Today, if you become a follower of Jesus, we believe that you receive God's spirit, that he comes and dwells within you. All three of these girls who are baptized have made that decision. They've accepted Christ and the Holy Spirit lives in them. But in this day, not everyone had the Holy Spirit's presence, but Simeon did. And God had told Simeon through his spirit that he would not die until he saw the consolation of Israel, is the phrase, until he saw the Messiah. And so he's waiting, literally, to die. Because he knows he won't die until that moment happens. And then there's a woman named Anna. Anna likely was married when she was 12 or 14, similar to Mary, who was betrothed to be married at the same age. That was their culture. Seems terrifying to us. Um, a child can't even have an Instagram account yet, but they can, you know, be married. But in that day, she was like married between 12 and 14. She was married for seven years, and her husband died. Likely by the time she was 20, she was a widow. And in this day, there was not protections for widows. She was exposed. And the text says, I read from the English Standard Version, that she was 84 years old. When she meets Jesus, some scholars believe that she actually waited 84 years. So somewhere between 84 and 105 is Anna. She's been waiting. She's been worshiping. She's been at the temple for somewhere between 60 to 80 years. These people have their PhD in waiting, which is why they have so much to teach us today. If you have a copy of the handout, I want to share with you, I think, three invitations this story brings us. Three invitations that were extended to Simeon and Anna, that they accepted, and that we have an opportunity to accept today. And here's the invitation, the first one. The first invitation is to trust in the darkness what we discovered in the light. Trust in the darkness what we discovered 
in the light. It's easy when, when your life is constantly lit, when there's light the whole time, it's easy to continue to trust. But when things get dark, that's where trust gets hard. And we see in Luke chapter 2 this playing out in Simeon's life. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And so he had this word from God, you're not going to die until you see the Messiah. I mean, if you've ever sensed, and, and we heard about it in the, in the baptismal, if you've ever sensed God speaking to you, you know how strongly that feeling can be. But the longer you go on, the more difficult it is to hold on to that feeling, to hold on to that truth, to hold on to that belief. Did I hear him wrong? Is he not going to do that? Did something come up? And so Simeon is trying to hold on to the truth that he heard in the light while his life continues on in darkness. And the same thing for Anna. I mean, she heard these promises like, hey, God's going to be with you. God loves you. God cares about you. And she's like, well, I've been here for 60 years waiting for a sign of that. And I think part of the problem is, is that we've been sold an incomplete, inconvenient truth. And it's most visibly, in my mind, embodied by this woman here, Mother Teresa. See, most of us say, I'm not really that bad of a person. I'm definitely better than bin Laden, but I'm not as good as Mother Teresa. I'm somewhere in between, you know? We, we locate ourselves between those two bookends, really, really bad and really, really good. But the problem is, is that most of us don't know this woman's real story. You know her from all the good things she did, the people she cared for in Calcutta, the, the Nobel Peace Prize. But if you go and read her journals, and you can buy them on Amazon, the book is called Come Be My Light. Mother Teresa would tell you that she only had two or three moments in her life where she felt God's presence. She only had two or three moments in her life where she ever sensed God speaking to her. And she would tell you that she wrestled with feeling like she had been rejected by God because she felt distant from him for the majority of her life. See, friends, I think we all think that life is a ongoing succession of moment after moment after moment where God is real, God is loud, and we feel him strongly. And yet, the story of Mother Teresa and the story of many of you is you only have a handful of moments where you really sensed and heard God speak in a loud and powerful way. And your challenge is, will you trust that? Those moments of light... When you continue to walk in the darkness, it's easy to trust in the light what you heard in the light. It's much harder to trust in the darkness what you heard in the light. And I'm here to tell you that I think the truth of scripture and the truth of the stories of many over the last 2000 years who followed Jesus is that our lives are going to be lived much more in darkness than they will in light. And we're going to have to learn how to wait on God in the darkness while we trust what he told us in the light. In the middle of our Bible, we read this in Psalm 27. The writer says, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. He says, wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. And so if you're waiting for the Lord and you've been in a long season of darkness, the invitation to you is what does it mean for you while you're walking in this season to trust what you heard in the light and allow it to sustain you through the darkness? The second invitation we receive in this moment, in this waiting, is an invitation to worship God based upon his character 
and not our circumstances. To worship God based upon our, his character, not our circumstances. It's really easy to worship God when everything is going well. When you're having a great experience, when the circumstances merit it, but worship is not based upon circumstances. Based on God's character. The, the actual word worth worship comes from a word that actually is worship. So to worship God is about his worth, his value, his greatness, not the greatness of your circumstances. And that's why I can tell you that the seasons in my life where I have worshipped, and, and please, we live in an era where worship is what happens in here before I talk. That's a very narrow definition of worship. Worship is declaring and proclaiming and recognizing the worship of God. His worth and value. And the seasons in my life where I have most worshipped with passion are not a dark room with hands raised high and loud music. They're the dark moments in my life where nobody else was around. And I was wrestling with, am I going to keep going or not? And in those moments, I had to decide, am I going to worship God because my circumstances merit it? Or am I going to worship God based upon his character? And again, we see this in Anna's life. It says there was, a, there was a prophetess named Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. That's the period where it later says that she was worshiping and fasting and praying night and day in the temple. It was in the middle of that circumstance, where her bank account was not fat because she could not get a job where no one else was coming along to provide for her and take her in. And it was in that moment that she had to decide, am I going to declare the majesty of God and the character of God and trust in him? Or am I going to allow my circumstances to lower my view? What I find so funny as I've been looking through these stories that we call the nativity story is that the nativity to me seems like a musical. And I'm not sure if any of you are fans of, I'm, I'm kind of growing in my appreciation of musicals. I married a musical lover. And so it's kind of as part of the package that I have to experience musicals. Um, she's teaching our children's musicals as part of their formation, I guess, as being in our family. Uh, but if you look at the story, you know, Mary hears that she's going to have a child, the Messiah. And what does she do? She writes a song. We call it the Magnificat. Zachariah is mute for nine months. And finally, he speaks. And what does he speak? A song. Simeon is given God in the flesh. And what does he do? He breaks out in song. I'm like, gosh, man, this is like a musical happening here, you know? Why are these people breaking out in song like this? Because that's what you do when your waiting room opens. You're overjoyed. I mean, think about it. Many of us haven't even been alive for 60 years. And she had spent 60 years, night and day, fasting and praying in the temple, praying that God's Messiah would come. She had been experiencing what the Navy SEALs teach. You know, the Navy SEALs teach you that um, in the moment is not how you know what you will do when crisis comes. The SEALs teach you that your training is what defines you when crisis comes. The, the seals say that people don't rise to the level of their potential. They fall to the level of their training. It's one of the reasons the military is literally militant about training. 
because they believe that when you are put in a crisis, and I would call a waiting room a crisis, your training comes out and you don't have your best day. No, you fall back on what you know. And my question for you is, how well have you been training for this waiting room? I don't think you're rising to your potential in the waiting room. I think you're falling back on your training. I joke that all these people are singing songs. The reason why they're worshiping God when their waiting room ended is because they've been worshiping God all along. And I believe you will do in the end what you did in the middle. If you're in a waiting room and you're cursing God, I don't believe a switch is magically going to flip when the waiting room ends and you start praising him. If you have been, haven't been living with faith in the waiting room, I don't believe the end of your waiting is going to be a great moment of faith. I believe you're going to be in the end what you were in the middle. You're not going to rise to your potential. You're going to fall back on your training. And that's why we worship God not based upon our circumstances because if we build a worship habit that is merely circumstantial, if you only come to church when you feel like you need to, then you will only turn to God when you feel like you need to. And when things are going well and up and to the right, we won't see you anymore because you're not going to be worshiping God for that. You're going to be taking credit for that. You and I both know people in our lives that when things fall apart, they turn to God. And when things go well, their ego puffs up. And the problem is more often than not, the people we know who do that are us. And we have a challenge while we're in the waiting room is will we build a muscle like our gratitude muscle to worship God all the time because his character is unchanging and worthy or does our worship ebb and flow based upon our circumstances? I was in a waiting room recently and I remember I was sitting there and I texted a friend. They said, hey, what are you doing? I said, I'm in the waiting room. And I said, I'm, I'm just killing time. And because I'm teaching on waiting right now, about two minutes later, I was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I said that. (laughs) See, I'm not up here because I have this all figured out. (laughs) I'm up here because I need to write these sermons and preach them to myself before I preach them to you. But so often when we're in the waiting room, what do we say? We say, I'm just killing time. We We take a view that says that waiting is passive. But friends, biblically speaking, waiting with God isn't passive. At least he doesn't want it to be. And what we see with Simeon and what we see with Anna is that they weren't waiting passively. They were waiting actively and they were worshiping God. And here's what worship does. Worship transforms waiting into anticipating. Where you go from resting on your laurels passively and waiting to worshiping and you're anticipating. We're not waiting for Christmas. We're anticipating the arrival of our Savior. We're not waiting in our waiting room for something to magically change. We're worshiping God and anticipating God. What are you going to do? I'm just excited to see how he works this out. I'm just excited to see him, how he provides. And I was in the lobby last week and, and one of our attenders, we had this whole conversation about this and I was like, that's awesome. I didn't tell him I'm using it in the sermon, but there you go. Thank you. Um, in Micah chapter seven, Micah, the, the Old Testament writer embodies this. He says, but as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. 
That's, that's anticipation. That's active waiting. That's worshiping in the waiting room, knowing that you're building the capacity so that when that moment comes, when the waiting room ends, you'll worship him. You won't take credit yourself. The third invitation in the waiting room is this. We need to stop treating prayer and fasting as acts of helplessness. And we need to start treating them as weapons of hope. Stop treating prayer and fasting as acts of helplessness. They're what you do when you can't do anything else and start treating them as weapons of hope. I referred to this earlier, but in in Anna's story in Luke 2, it says, she did not depart from the temple worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day for 60 years. Many of us would go, you know, prayer and fasting is what I do when I don't have anything else to do or I don't know what else to do. They're, they're last resorts. And we get the kind of results from them that you get from last resorts. So often when, when we're in a struggle, we finally turn to help. And when the person we turn to hears us, they say, hey, well, if you'd come sooner, I would have had more options. But because you're now here, here's what we can do. And so often we get from prayer and fasting last resort power as opposed to first option power. And you see what happens this day is that Simeon, who has the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit literally leads him and tells him to go to the temple. And we learn later that Simeon Simeon is there having this moment with with Jesus and Mary and Joseph. And then Anna just walks right up. She kind of just sees them there. Why? Because she's always there. She's the person who's kind of always there. Oh my, who's that woman over there? She's Anna. She's been here for forever, you know? She was here after I got here and she'll be here before I'm gone, you know? Like she's just been here forever. And they're there anticipating and praying and fasting and waiting for a moment when this baby walks in. And they know this baby is the Messiah because God spoke to them because they built the capacity to hear God and they were actually listening for him. And anybody else on the outside might have said, man, Simeon, Anna, what a terrible life. Poor Anna. Her husband died when she was 20 and she's been here and oh man, what what a waste of a life. But I have to believe that if this moment had like 24-7 cable news and someone ran up to Simeon and Anna in the moment and they say, how do you feel now? You know? You feel like you just wasted all this time waiting for God to show up? I have to believe that holding God in the flesh, they wouldn't have said, man, I feel like I wasted my life. I have to believe they would have said what we read this week if you're going through the devotional by Louis Giglio that we handed out a few weeks ago, where Giglio says, if we're truly waiting on God, we won't miss anything. See, I think we end up missing out and I think our waiting gets wasted because we sit back passively or we give up in the waiting room. We give up right before what God is going to do. We sit back passively and we're not watching for him so we don't see anything. And this is why I said we need to start treating prayer and fasting as weapons because when we treat them as weapons, we take an active posture in the waiting and we put ourselves in the place where God can speak and where we'll hear him. So many times in my house, I hear my kids yelling at me 
And, uh, you know, my wife is like, what, what's going on? Can you go figure out what's going on? You know, and they're yelling and what's going on? Well, I yelled at you three times. And so now I'm screaming at you, dad, you know, see, I'm mad at them for yelling. But if I'd listened the first time, they wouldn't have needed to yell. So often we miss the whispers of God because we're not listening. And in that darkness, we're not in control of the darkness ending. We're not in control of the waiting room ending. We're not in control of that time coming. Simeon and Anna, obviously, were not in control of when they met the Messiah. But here's what we can do. Margaret Feinberg sums it up well. She says, sometimes you have to poke holes in the darkness until it bleeds light. Sometimes you have to poke holes in the darkness until it bleeds light. You got to keep worshiping and fasting. You got to keep praying. And you need to not do it by yourself. Because here's what happens to me. And I know you never have this problem. This is just me. So just give me 30 seconds. When I go through a waiting room or something hard, I turn inward. And I depend on myself. And I let anybody else know I'm struggling. And I just try to overcome the darkness in my own power. I know nobody ever does that. And that's why I think it's so different to go look at the stars by yourself than it is to go with somebody who actually knows what they're looking at. My friend Jason's sitting down here. Jason plays in our band every few weeks. And Jason's got an amazing telescope and he took me out to look through it a couple years ago. And I actually knew once I was looking through his telescope what I was actually seeing. And so often what we need is we need help poking holes in the darkness. We need people who will help us see the light that we can't see. We need people who will come alongside us and show us what we haven't been able to see up till now. And that's what Simeon and Anna can be for you and I. They can be those friends. And I can tell you that you will fall victim to the lies of our enemy the more you go through the darkness alone. And you will see the light when not only do you turn to Christ for strength, but you turn to the people around you. Lamentations. There's a whole book in the Bible called Lamentations. Just a reminder that if you're having a hard holiday season, there's a whole book for you called Lamentations. And it says, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait on him, to the soul who seeks them. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. You may not want to be in your waiting room and you may wish it was over. You may be trying to do everything you can to change, to speed it up. But I believe that last verse is true. That it's good that we wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord because God does stuff in the waiting room that goes beyond our imagination. On the back of your handout, there's a couple of next steps I want to draw your attention to. And the first one is this. I want you to use the truth and lies card that we'll show you in a second to identify the lies that have deceived you in the waiting room and the truths you need to meditate on today. In your bulletin, you got a card. It's like this. It's kind of hard to miss. It's very bright colors. Hold it up. If, I, mean, I know you have it. What got in the bulletins this week? Okay. You got them? Okay. On one side, the red side is the lies. 
And on the green side is the truth. We've kind of given it Christmas colors. You're welcome. And what I'd love for you to do is I'd love for you to spend some time today before you go to bed going, what are the lies that I'm really susceptible to right now? And what are the truths that I need to meditate on? And then put that up in your car, on your, on your mirror in your bathroom, in your cubicle at work, somewhere where you will see it and use it to remind yourself of the things, oh, that's not true, that's a lie. Or, oh, no, that, that's the truth, I need to lean into that. And, and grasp a hold of those so that you go through this season with greater strength and greater victory. Number two, I want to encourage you to name and reclaim the promises of God that you heard in the light. If you're in the middle of a season of darkness, I want you to pause and, and mentally walk back to that period where there was light and go, what did I hear God say to me? What did I hear God tell me? And, and name those and reclaim those as you continue to walk in the darkness. And then number three, I want you to choose one prayer or worship or fasting activity to practice in your waiting room. Maybe it's that you're going to give up now that Christmas is almost over. You're going to give up something you like to eat. And when you feel a hunger for that, you're going to turn to depend on God. Maybe it's you're going to develop. This is the time of day where I choose to pray and eliminate all the distractions. Maybe you're going to build a playlist that are the songs that encourage you and, and strengthen your faith. And you're going to turn that on when you need a boost in the middle of the week. But pick one of those practices to turn to as a first option, not a last resort. Today, I want to conclude with a story. And I want to make sure I get the details right, so I'm going to pull out my trusty iPad here. I want to introduce you to a uh, friend of mine this morning. His name is Horatio Spafford. Horatio was an attorney living in the Chicago area in the 1800s. He was ridiculously successful. He was so successful as an attorney that he had cash to invest in real estate. He was a husband and a father. He was a devout follower of Jesus. But everything changed in 1871. In 1871, Horatio's oldest son died of scarlet fever. And two years later, in 1873, there's a famous fire that happened in Chicago. It's called the Great Chicago Fire of 1873. And his home burned, and nearly every building that he owned burned. He lost it all. And he was fighting to be able to make it through, um, to rebuild. But after a couple years, he was just exhausted. So he and his family planned to take a well-earned vacation. The only problem was is that there was a zoning issue with one of the buildings he was rebuilding. And so he put his wife and his four daughters on a ship to sail to Europe. And he said, I'll meet you in a couple weeks. And as his family was traveling across the Atlantic, their ship ran into another ship. And they both sunk. And a few days later, not knowing the crash or the sinking had happened, Horatio got a telegram from his wife. And it said these six words, saved alone, what shall I do? All four of the daughters perished. In a matter of years, less than five, he went from being a father of five, 
wealthy, future secure, to just having his wife. That was it. He rushed from Chicago to the coast and he got on a boat, which had to be a nerve wracking experience. And he crossed over those same waters, going to meet his wife in Europe. And while he was passing over the place where his daughters died, ironically, he wrote a song. And these are the words. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. How on earth do you write those words while you're in the water right above where your daughters have died? I'm a father. You're a human. How do you write those words? How do you write, it is well with my soul when your soul is drowning in grief? How do you write those words when you've lost it all? How do you write those words when you're waiting to go, God, what are you going to do now? How do you write those words? The only way you write those words is if you are not alone because God is with you. And I believe in that ship, Horatio was not alone. And whatever you're in today, you're not alone. You are not alone. And he promises that he will never forsake us. He will always be with us. And that in our waiting, nothing is wasted. This morning, the band is going to lead us in a new version of that song as well. And you may want to stand, you may want to sit, you may want to come down and pray. But before you leave today and move on to the rest of your holiday plans, I pray that you'd have a moment with God where you know that you are not alone. Thank you for listening to the audio from Cornerstone Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit us online at www.prescottcornerstone.com.